This famous passage on Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Matthew 21, verse 1 down through verse 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me, and if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. And this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and all that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word stands forever, friends. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Please. The king you want is not always the king you need. We love Palm Sunday. Most Christians around the world love Palm Sunday. Some churches even celebrate Palm Sunday almost more than they celebrate Easter Sunday because we love it in a spiritual sense. We love that Jesus comes into Jerusalem on a donkey, and we love to wave our palm branches, and we love to publicly shout, we love Jesus! We're his people! We care so much about him. But then when he threatens your foundational belief that you have for yourself, for your family, or for your future, you do exactly what the disciples did. You do exactly what the crowds do. Within a week, you quite frankly, when you're threatened, turn your back on Jesus and have him killed. In this story that many of you have read, perhaps since you were very young, there are three characters in this story. Did you hear them when we read it together? Who are the first characters? The first group of people that you read are the disciples. The second group of people are whom? They are the crowds. The third group of people are whom? The whole city. So just for a few moments together, I want us to think about these three groups of folks. The disciples, the crowd, and the whole city. And I want to ask you to enter into one of those three characters and ask yourself, 
which of these three characters can you most relate with? And then give you an opportunity to respond to your king who is in your midst as you prepare to come to the Lord's table. Sound good? Three characters. The king that we want is not always the king that we need. What do I mean by that? First, the disciples. The disciples were with Jesus as he was teaching them and preaching, and there was a heightened sense of his of expectation of something amazing about to happen as he comes physically, geographically nearer and nearer to Jerusalem. And so Jesus says to his disciples, would you please run an errand for me? Would you please obey me at my word? And they dutifully obey him. These disciples, as it were, as the early church often preached of this text, they were the moral, they were the obedient in the church. They were the ones who at a moment's notice would obey God at his word and go and do what he called them to do. And so Jesus gives them a very simple task. I want you to go into the city and there you will find a donkey and he will be tied next to a colt. And I want you to bring them both to me. It's not uncommon that we think about Jesus riding in on a single animal into the triumphal entry. It, it, wasn't, it would not be uncommon for the donkey and the colt to be together for the only way to keep a young animal calm as if his mother was by its side, perhaps. And so they bring these two animals to Jesus, and then they lay their cloaks on the animals, and Jesus sits on the donkey as they take him in to Jerusalem. The interesting thing about the disciples is that the disciples were people who believed that Jesus was going to reward them in the age to come. That sounds a little off-putting to say about the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, but no doubt they did believe that. Constantly they're asking, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, Jesus? And constantly he is deflecting their hearts back to the essence, the kernel of what the gospel is, which we will talk about together in a moment. The disciples went so far as to even teach their parents what this means. Do you remember, what is it that the mother of James and John says to Jesus? Do you remember the story when the mother of James just before this passage in chapter 20 of Matthew, the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what is it that you wish? And she said, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit on your right and on your left. And Jesus said to her, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And they said to him, oh yes, we are able. And he said to them, my cup, oh, you shall drink. And just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, you will drink that cup. One of the motifs, one of the underlying things the disciples longed for throughout the Gospels was to know about their position in the kingdom it is arguable to say that it was not until Jesus' resurrection appearance that they actually got what he was trying to teach them for the years he was with them in ministry. There are people in the crowd who are watching Jesus and the disciples who dutifully obeyed. And why did they obey? Because they obeyed because they wanted some kind of personal or spiritual power. Please hear me. 
The Huffington Post this week, or not long ago, put an article out called The Five Reasons Why I Hate Religious Christianity. It's written by a young man named Terry Spiegel. And the comments afterwards just lit up a conversation that all of us are having with our neighbors and our friends when we're really honest. And all these reasons why he hated religious Christianity, the top of the list was people who so clearly claim to know the truth. They know what Jesus wants us to do at every moment and detail of our lives. And then when fellow Christians who believe the same true God with the same Bible come and they try to address secondary issues with the same kind of certainty, the first thing they do is not demonstrate love, but they call each other heretics. And he's watching this happen. He says, why would I want to become part of the church when I just see bickering, arguably more bickering? Arguably, it's harder to talk to, to, talk to Christians about the things of God, about the meaningful questions of life, than it is to talk to people who don't believe in Jesus. The disciples demonstrate for me and for you something that Flannery O'Connor said many years ago when she wrote that there are two ways to hide from God. There's the irreligious way where you can just go live however you want to, and then there's the religious way where you obey him as a way to get him somehow to feel obliged to reward you. Oh, Flannery O'Connor writes about this character named Hazel Motes that he was afraid of Jesus, and so he knew that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. And so he couched in his life dutiful obedience in order for him to leverage his obedience against God so that God would reward him. Listen, I don't know why you're here, but there are some of you who from a very early age have found it very easy and wonderful to obey God's word. That is wonderful. It's beautiful. But do not replace idolatry of your obedience to Jesus with what he calls you to do. What is that? Hang on. Second group of people, the crowd. The crowd, as Jesus comes closer to Jerusalem, there's a heightened political expectation that Jesus is going to come and conquer the Romans once and for all. And so they gladly throw their palm branches and their cloaks, and they say, Hosanna. They knew without a shadow of a doubt, friends, that Jesus' triumphal entry was the fulfillment of Zechariah 9, 9. There's no question about it among scholars that there is a palpable sense that they understood this. They are quoting it. They are singing it. They are saying it. Here is the one who has come. And they expected Jesus to be a political mercenary that would free them from all of their oppression. And it's like the church to believe the same, isn't it? It's like Christians to believe the same, that we take Jesus, and we may not choose to use him to leverage him for personal power, but sometimes we use to leverage the church in political ways. We use to leverage the church in, with political power. Here he is. He's going to deliver us from all of our fears and Bring us out of Caesar's reign. And then what's fascinating to me is in Zechariah 9, 9, where it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble, mounted on a donkey? Listen, 400 years before this ever happened, 
It's a picture of this triumphal entry, no doubt. And then Jesus says, on a coal, uh, Zechariah, on a coal, on the foal of a donkey. And then the Lord says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off. And he, the Messiah, shall speak peace to the nations and his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And the crowds love verse 9 of Zechariah chapter 9, but they didn't take on verse 10, which says precisely the opposite of what they thought Jesus would do. Jesus is going to speak peace over the nations, but it is not going to be with the sword or the bow. He himself is going to be the peace offering for the nations. When you think about the disciples and their allegiance to Jesus, their dutiful obedience to him, and you think about the crowds and their, their awareness of Scripture and their, their public profession of Jesus, if the disciples are the obedience, outwardly obedience, then the crowds become the public professors about Jesus. But isn't it interesting what happens just a little while longer? Within a week, what are the crowds saying? What are they saying? Crucify him. Within a week, what are the disciples doing? Oh, we shall drink this cup with you, Lord. We shall drink of it. I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Caesar, in the year 332 B.C., rode into Jerusalem, magnificent on a war horse, white, blazing, and brilliant. And he strode into Jerusalem, conquering the political powers of the day. And here, in stark contradistinction, comes Jesus who rides in on the animal that Jews thought was unworthy of a Messiah ever to sit upon, a donkey. The one who knew where the colt and donkey would be, he is sovereign and he is divine, was the same one who rode in humble on a donkey. He is humble and he is fully human. You see both the two natures of Jesus in this triumphal entry passage. It's beautiful. There he is. But yet you have the disciples, those who obeyed him. You have the crowds, those who outwardly professed him. And the night that Jesus was arrested, Judas comes up and kisses him. Remember the story? And Peter pulls out a sword and cuts Malchus's ear off. And Jesus says to Peter, put that thing away. And he heals Malchus's ear. And a moment later, when they arrest Jesus, what does it say happened to the disciples? It said that they ran. In Mark 14, verse 15, it says, verse 50, it says, and they all left him and fled. And then Mark, to make a point, said that a young man was following him, maybe this was John, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body, and they seized him, and he pulled free, 
And even he ran away from Jesus completely unclothed. Friends, the king that you want is not always the king that you need. And we, if we're not careful, create a Jesus and create a gospel that reflects our own values. But Jesus is not interested in your own values. He is interested in calling you to do two things. That he repeats to his disciples again and again and again, which was the point of his very first sermon. Repent, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repentance and faith are the two things to which God calls you to do. And all of your obedience of Jesus, yes, please run and obey him quickly and soon. Do what he says to do, but do not do it in order to leverage him for political or personal power. Do not do it so that you can leverage the same upper middle class lifestyle that you long to have in Northeast Oklahoma. Please, friends, do not make Jesus into a reflection of your own values because you turn the tide and you begin to worship something that you have created that is in contradistinction to who he really is. There's an old pastor named Ichabod Spencer who lived in the 19th century. And Ichabod Spencer later took the pulpit of Jonathan Edwards in Northampton, Massachusetts in the 1820s. There's an amazing revival that happened at Northampton then, and it wore him out physically. So he retreated to take a church plant of 40 people in Brooklyn in 1832 called Second Presbyterian Church. Ichabod Spencer was asked to be the president of the University of Alabama. He said no. He was asked to be the president of a college in New York. He said no. He felt called to preach. And he detailed in his chronicles specific cases of people that he met with. And one of these people that he met with was a young man who yearned to be religious. And he said, I so long want to grow in my relationship with Jesus. And Ichabod sees him at service. And he says, so how is it going? Yearning to want to grow in a relationship with Jesus. And he says, I am waiting. What are you waiting for? I'm waiting for my religious devotions to bring me closer to the Savior. Okay. Keep coming to worship, he says. He comes week after week, and suddenly the man stops coming. And Ichabod sees him on the streets and says to him, young man, how is your search coming to know Jesus? And he says to him, um, it's going great. I stopped going to church which is a big deal in 18, the 1830s. But I found a man, a minister, who'd said to me, all you need to do is pray and read your Bible. So I've been doing that. And Ichabod says, well, how is that going? And he says, well, I don't see much difference quite yet. And Ichabod said to him, sir, the advice you got to read your Bible and pray was the wrong advice. Please hear what I'm saying. What you need to do is to become more discouraged not less. What you need to be is more discouraged, not less, because you need to see the weight of your sin and your self-righteousness is driving you again away from the gospel to your own self-efforts to leverage your power toward the Almighty. And as you've heard in my church, the only way to come to Jesus is to have only one thing 
You only need to have need because you have nothing left to offer. In just a moment, friends, we're going to invite you to the Lord's table. And I want you to know, are you the disciples who have contrasted or constructed a Jesus that is something very far foreign from what he actually is? And are you entering into your obedience in a way that is moving you toward repentance or is it moving you toward self-righteousness? Obey God at his word, but do it so you can grow in repentance and faith. More honest about your hearts, understanding yourself more deeply than you first recognized. Or are you like the crowds who publicly profess Jesus with their lips? Like the realtor that I met when I first moved to town who said the first piece of advice that they give people, colleagues in their office, is you must join a church to be a realtor in Owasso or you will never sell a house. Publicly professing with their lips, creating a Jesus that's going to provide for them the economic stability that they long for. But what he calls you to do is to grow in repentance and faith. Those of you who are longing to plant a church in Bartlesville, please hear me. Are you constructing an image of the church that's outside the bounds of what Jesus' church should look like? Jesus wants your church to be for the city of Bartlesville. He wants you to grow in faith and repentance. In what ways do we need to die to seeking the kind of personal, even spiritual power in our community that says we've got it right? Until you can die to your own pursuits of power and see that the only way that you can have true power is by letting go of your self-righteousness and letting the gospel be what you communicate to people. Because do you know who's watching you? The whole city. That's what it says in the text. It says, and the whole city was stirred up asking spiritual questions. Who is this? And they even gave them the right answer. This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth. But yet they watched from a distance, and within a week, they ran. Where have you constructed a Jesus that is very different from the Jesus who calls you to do the very simple task of faith and repentance? Unless you think that that becomes a broken record in this city, please, or in this church, please hear me say that you have underestimated the depth of your sin. Every week, we are called to grow in our relationship with Christ by recognizing that His righteousness is the only thing we plead. His work for us. And when you begin to grow in faith and repentance, you become, as the disciples were, quick to run and do the things that Jesus bids you to do. You begin to do what the crowds did, and you begin to profess Him publicly. Yes, but you do it with a heart that is genuine. Because one day, someday... It's not just going to be because the Coptic Pope visited an Alexandrian church in Egypt on Palm Sunday in 2017 that the deacons of the church and the guards of the church protected the entire church from being blown up. There may well be a day when that happens here. And I pray that the Lord spares us of that kind of sifting. I pray that we become a people now who know what it's like to walk in repentance and faith. And when you see other believers in this town, you lock arms with them and you call them to repentance and faith together. And do not construct a Jesus that just gives you social, economic, political power in Oklahoma. 
allow Christ himself to humble you so that you can say that I have no righteousness of my own, but I only have that righteousness that is given to me by the Lord Jesus Christ. Martin Luther said this gospel in reading this text of his church many years ago wants to entice us to faith and repentance above all else. But no one can accept this gracious Christ unless he believes that he is a man and adopts the opinion of him that the evangelist Matthew gives. He is presented to us as sheer grace and humility and goodness. Look at him. He rides no stallion, Luther writes, which is a war animal, and he comes not with fearful pomp and power, but sits on a donkey, which is no war animal, but which is ready for the burdens to work that help human beings. And thereby he shows that he does not come to terrify people. Oh, Jesus does not come to terrify or to drive or to oppress them, but he comes to help them if they would be helped, to carry their burdens and to take them on as the animal on which he rode, to take them on himself. Jesus comes to bear your burdens, friends. Would you let him do that? Would you let him bear the burden of your sin as you come to this table? If you have never come to know Christ, would you admit that you need him? That all of your self-righteous pursuits for salvation have left you gasping for air? And would you see that it is not, if you're new to the church, or you stand outside of it, it is not the solidarity of Christians, or even their behavior that should drive you to Christ. It is Christ and His righteousness that drives you to then see that the church is made up of broken people longing to walk in repentance and faith and struggle together. The king you want is not always the king you need. And the king who rode into Jerusalem on a donkey invites you to come to this table confessing nothing but your need for Him. Would you prepare your hearts to come to this table and receive from the king himself the bread and the wine? For he loves you, and he is the king you need. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you will help us to be a people who know that you are not the king that we always want. Our desires are tainted with sin. And though those of us, Lord Christ, who you have made new, can desire that which is good, and we long for that, Lord, help us to long for it even more, not by being goaded by the commands of Scripture, but by being drawn in and being wooed by the beautiful picture of your life and death and resurrection for us. Jesus, would you help us now on this Palm Sunday to come not with the palms of our righteousness, but with empty hands to your table, to draw near to you, to confess our self-righteous longings for salvation, and to find that you are the beast of burden who wants to carry away our guilt and our shame. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.